0: Welcome to CJSW Writer's Block, broadcasting from the University of Calgary at 90.9 on your FM dial. I'm host and producer Dimfni Dronick.
1: I'm host and producer Cody Dronic. Our show airs at 8 p.m. on the third Wednesday of every month. And if you've missed it live, you can check out our podcast at cjsw.com.
0: On this month's show... We are talking about an anthology of Essays About Grief with Nikki Reimer and Richard Harrison, and we also are talking with Angela Dillon and Bob Stallworthy about their new collections of poetry. Nikki Reimer writes poetry, nonfiction, and micro-reviews and dabbles in art. Her published books are My Heart is a Rose Manhattan, Downverse, and Sick. She continues to live in Calgary, Alberta on the traditional territories of the people of Treaty 7.
2: Nikki Reimer, welcome to CJW Writer's Block. Thank you so much. Tell us a little bit about your essay, Evil in My Pocket, that is included in the anthology, Locations of Grief and Emotional Geography, edited by Catherine Owen.
3: So it... Uh, it is an essay that takes place in Kelowna, B.C. and Calgary, Alberta. It recounts um, my family's history in, in the city of Kelowna. Um, and it talks about a journey that I took that was a physical journey as well as an emotional journey uh, when I moved with my spouse. From Vancouver to Calgary, we drove through and passed through Kelowna, um, and I took some of my brother's ashes and let them go in Okanagan Lake at the beach where we had spent um, ten or more summers as a child. Uh, so it's um, it's a very personal, uh, difficult. Journey to have done um, in life, and uh, I hope that I have done justice to how intense and powerful the experience was uh, in this essay.
2: It's certainly a deeply moving piece of writing, and uh, the vividness of you know the memories we carry of those we've lost is is very evident and beautifully handled. How does geography uh, relate to grief and
3: mourning for you? Yeah, I I, um, I think that there are places that we pass through or that we spend time in throughout the course of our lives that very much become a part of us, where we carry those places with us. Certainly... Um, uh, Kelowna and, and that beach and, uh, the, the trailer park where my, both my grandparents lived, uh, in that same space. Those, those bits of geography, those pieces of earth are a part of me that I now will carry with me. Um, and I think that when there are people who've been part of those experiences and those places with us, uh, who are no longer with us in the material world, I think that we can't help but have a grief connection to those places, right? Um, mm-hmm. yeah, where, where we, we had, we had either, you know, repeated experiences, a place that we spent time in summer after summer after summer, in my case, um, or, or formative experiences that we had growing up, places that are dear to our hearts. It ends up being a a time and a place grieving uh, alongside the grieving for the person, because you miss, miss the person, but you miss that beach Um, and you could go to that beach now, but what you actually miss is 1995,
2: right? Yeah. Yeah. And the person who you shared it with. Yeah. Yeah. So your brother, Chris, uh, was a member of the Calgary Band Women, uh, which, mm-hmm. while now disbanded, is still much beloved. And and I'm struck by how grieving a well-known person, um, you know, where complete strangers <laughs> claim or share some of your grief, where it's kind of less private, adds mm-hmm. a different dimension to that process.
3: Yeah. Um, thank you so much for that question. That that was something that was wonderful but sometimes horrible and sometimes just very strange that I had to confront um immediately after after Chris died uh the very next day I there was a story um on cbc uh cbc.ca in the arts section I was on I was on the phone the day after he died talking to a reporter about him and his life and his music um when i I still very much was in shock over what had happened, um but also very much felt a sense of duty and responsibility to help accurately communicate to the world everything about the person that he was yeah mm-hmm. um, yeah very there there were times where the public nature of it would come up and hit me. Um, where I would have preferred to have not had to deal with that, you know, um, uh, or just an offhand an offhand mention here or there uh, about him and about his death. It, it really does add a whole other layer and dimension and thing that you have to walk through and come to terms with um, alongside everything else that is part of a normal grieving journey.
2: Yeah, and you have to or you feel compelled to keep it together when, Mm. right. When, when you actually, that's the last thing you want to do. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
2: In, in your essay, you also describe how not just familiar places, but songs, you know, the music themselves evoke pain, but also a kind of comfort Mm. and how, how that, you know, it, it can help, but it uh cannot gut you sometimes too mm.
3: so um sorry, the
2: the the in fact, I think the title of the essay is also the title of a song, right
3: that's right yeah, um music and art uh very much is, is how I experience the world and also is how. Chris experienced the world. Uh, it was something that we shared. Um, our our greatest our greatest passions were in art making, um, and so it makes sense to me that that grieving through experiencing art or making art was very very much a way that I had to go through that. Um, there there i've heard other people talk about this but there was a period for me really in the immediate aftermath and the years after where it really felt like my senses were heightened all the time um i i probably seemed half mad to people around me but i i really very much was taking in all sorts of sensory experiences all the time and and uh feeling like i was inside uh a song or, or a piece of writing, if if that makes any sense at all. Um, and so the, the, the song evil in my, um, sorry, the, the, the title of the essay itself is, uh, from a line from a song and it was, uh, a friend had made me a mixed CD, um, that had some really beautiful, uh, poignant songs on it that, that really was, was very much, Part of where my journey, where I needed to be in my journey at that time, um, that that one particular song, and it's it's part of the essay, is that I I ended up meeting the musician who wrote that song, um, and then there are connections where he actually had known Chris, um, in in because of the you know they they either had been on tour together, they shared the same. Uh, European booking agent and so they had met each other and um, it just just this serendipitous things that happen sometimes in life and particularly in grief experiences. My friend makes me a mixed CD, this one song um, guts me but is so beautiful and it's so meaningful to me. I, I post that song with a picture on uh, Tumblr. Um, A young woman that both my brother and I knew, who's a dancer, was so moved, she had lost uh, a boyfriend as well, and she was so moved by my grief and how I was communicating my grief through art, that she took that song and made a dance piece from it, um, which was stunningly beautiful. Uh, And then I, I had this need to try to meet this person who wrote this song, um and i and i was able to meet him and i talk about that in the essay but um i feel like the those experiences that i had and um and and the way that that, that song touched so many people in so many different ways i think it just really speaks to how powerful art and music and writing and dance and all art forms—they're just so powerful, and they're at the core of, I think, who we are as as humans. Um, and and there's something actually kind of beautiful in that, in in how these expressions of oneself can have a life of their own in in the lifetime of the creator but then have a a life of their own after that person is gone. And that kind of ties back into your earlier question about the fact that my brother was a a public figure who was a musician who made art and music that touched people and continues to touch people. Mm -hmm. Um, It actually is uh, coming up in September is the 10th anniversary of the release of public strain, which was the last album that, that room put out. Um, and I recorded a thing for a radio program earlier this week, talking about public strain. Uh, so yeah, it's just um, all funny with timing and and um, just how these these things, in a way, don't end because there are, there are material objects out in the world that uh, you can continue to return to,
2: and the energy around those material things lives on, too. So in some ways, the energy of the person does.
3: Absolutely.
2: One one of your ways of making art is through poetry. And I'm curious if writing is a path into healing for you.
3: That question, um, I I want to be careful with the way I answer it because I... So that
2: actually is a wonderful lead into um, my my final question, and that is, what are your hopes for how this anthology, your essay, and this anthology as a whole will have an impact on the reader?
3: I think that um, writing in particular can be, and stories uh, in particular, can be such a powerful way for people to have their own experiences reflected back and sometimes changed. Um, it can be very powerful to have had, a, uh, an intense emotional experience. And then to read something that it, the details aren't exactly the same, but the depth of emotion is the same or the depth of loss is the same. Um, right after Chris passed away, um, Jean Baird reached out to me. She's George Bowron's partner, and she's a a writer and an editor and a researcher in her own right. She asked me if she could send me an anthology that uh, she and George had edited, and it was a a grief anthology. Um, That book was so important for me and such a uh, companion for me as I went through the early days of my loss to be able to read well-crafted stories that spoke to what I was experiencing really made me feel less alone.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
3: so I very much I hope for my essay and for all the essays in this book that they can reach people uh, who are maybe in the early days of their own loss or maybe their own loss of years in the past. Um, I very much would hope that they could find a place of comfort and companionship.
2: Yeah. Well, I, I certainly uh, felt that as a reader. You know, there's so many different angles in it, and, and yet there's this overall shared, um, yeah, pain, but also beauty to it. So yeah. thank you for... For being part of that anthology and thank you for sharing your story with us.
3: Well, thank you so much for reading, and thank you for your your really kind and thoughtful question.
0: Angela Dillon is an award-winning author and educator. Her first book, Matrinalia, won the 2019 Alberta Writers Guild Award for Poetry. Miss Mercy, a selection from this book, was long listed for the 2018 CBC Poetry Prize. Originally from Windsor, Ontario, Angela Dillon now resides in Calgary, Alberta.
2: Angela Dillon, welcome to CJSW Writer's Block. Thank you so much, me. This month, you launched your second collection of poems called Murmuration uh, with Thistledown Press you share with our readers a little bit about all the fabulous things that this collection touches on? Ooh, skill testing question. Um, Okay, yes, Murmuration is a collection of work um, that was inspired actually by an article that I read ages ago in The Guardian um, about a young girl who um, invariably got gifts that seemed to be given to her by crows. She started to feed one, and uh, the next thing she knew, she had many gifts that were dropped um, at her feet sometimes. Um, and she collected these gifts, and, and I found that a fascinating thing, the relationship that she was able to form with um, with crows. Um, and then that led to just some digging around a little bit about how humans and crows communicate with one another. Um, and I started there. Very cool. Um, and we'll we'll get back to the crows because they are a powerful voice throughout. But I wanted to ask you <clears throat> first. Um, your first collection, Matronalia, won the Stephen G. Stephenson Award last year, and I'm at the Alberta Literary Awards. And I'm curious how um, the writing of this second book was different from the Mm. writing of the first, especially after, you know, a first book attaining something like that. Mm. Thank you so much for asking because um, it is a different book altogether. The first book came to me kind of like a tsunami, but this book is much more like a fugue. Um, And the intention was to hold myself to the physics of of murmuration and Basically, for my research, what I found out is that um, birds tend to fly in murmuration according to the seven birds nearest to themselves, and then they can create these gorgeous patterns that we see in the sky that I, that I always find so thrilling and fascinating. So my intention for this book was to to try, if I could, to create a kind of a murmuration with words um so seven the pattern of seven figures very very prominently in the in the book um it's much more cerebral than my first book was so it was really it was definitely harder to write much more of a challenge um and so thematically what i'm doing is um i'm also exploring who my seven are so what are my seven influences or who are my seven people who are the things that, or who are the, the people or what are the things that it have influenced me? Um, and then uh, and then to, to sort of plumb the depths in that way, if that makes some sense to you there. Mm-hmm. So, mm. so the very nature of giving yourself constraints almost opened up uh, things for you to explore. Exactly right. Exactly right. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. It was a little bit frustrating at times too but it, but uh, the more um I worked at it, the more it opened up um so so many things influenced this book um definitely fugues the idea of uh time sort of collapsing what that means um flock mentality, how we're influenced by by things that we're not even quite aware of as we we move through through memes um and even down to the last page where uh, the very final page of the book is written in sevens as well. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it is uh it, it almost is weaves a spell for, as a reader. And I think we're maybe more tuned into those patterns on a subconscious level than on a conscious mm-hmm. level. Mm-hmm. Cause now that you're, you're describing it, I can picture the pages. Mm. Um, where some of those things are happening. Mm. There are there are several threads other than patterns uh running mm-hmm. through the collection it seems to me. And one one of which is these saucy, sassy uh crows <laughs> who weigh in on life uh, mm. almost like sages. Sometimes like yeah. yeah yeah, like jesters. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um it's like they spoke to you and and through you in a in a magical almost um, I don't even otherworldly language. Yeah, you're exactly exactly right. I don't even begin to understand um, where Crow voice actually comes from, and and that part was so much fun uh, to write because I had absolutely no uh, limitations or no expectations of that voice. It really just did come out as a very playful entity <laughs> and you know just in the construct of the book crow as a black swipe if if you can imagine that um flies through the book so if you look at patterns like i'm i'm just fascinated by patterns you'll see that that the the voice of crow the way it moves through the the text should should feel like a bit of a, a black swipe as well. like a wing stroke you yeah exactly yeah um yeah some of the having read your first book and then and then this one a couple of times in preparation for this interview it also felt like there was some soul level on which this book was a companion piece perhaps or a a counterpoint to Mm Matronalia. was that the intention or did it happen that way Uh, I think a little bit of both to be honest Anthony I mean um I, I usually in my writing i it's it's quite introspective it's usually quite personal to to a degree um in in this book in uh, murmuration it has to do with um as i was mentioning influences like what are what are the seven that that are present in my life that i'm I'm parsing over that's part of it um and then also the sense of an echo of a kind of a universal timeless echo so what is the information that comes that is coming to me um, so there's my father's voice definitely that's a very strong part of the book it's um, in a way wishing to collapse um, time so that I could still hear him he, he passed away a number of years ago um, there's there's that aspect and then uh, present day things that are going on um, and also this sort of omniscient uh, I suppose response is also there, um, whereas Matronalia was uh, much more uh, of an internal dialogue. I think, um, but I can see how you would you would be able to put those two books together and detail them a bit because they do have similarities. Yeah, At one felt more female and one felt more male. But yes, that yeah. could be just me imagining it. It's not you just imagining it. It was me actually really wanting to crawl into um, a bit more of, of definitely through my my father, that a bit more of a, of a male sense. You're correct. Yeah. The other thing that really resonated for me is that I, I think you must love classic language po- poems that harken back to older worlds i do mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that voice really comes out oh i, I appreciate you you're having said that um i wonder is there a particular passage or a particular piece that you you found resonated in that way for you uh, I think a lot of times the crow, the crow mm-hmm. voice was like that, where I could—I don't know—I kept picturing cobblestones and, you know, trees that we maybe don't have here mm-hmm. in Canada, a, a, a greener place. I, yeah. I don't know what it was, but it was like being transported to a different, a different time. Mm. I'm really happy that. Um, you're saying this because you're one of the first readers and so it means a lot to me that that this is how the book has unfolded for you Um, definitely um, in mythology there's crow as um, legend and shapeshifter as well so I'm hoping that that's something that that becomes apparent as, as people read the book and that takes me to this this other thing that I may be projecting, but I felt uh, in some ways that that a lot of the, some of the work was trying to make sense of the competing roots of Catholicism and uh, maybe Druid or Celtic beliefs, and mm-hmm. and what those uh, conflicting and also complementary sometimes voices were. Mm-hmm you know try as I as I do to um to let go of some of my own personal struggles uh having been raised um as a catholic and as an irish catholic um first generation canadian uh it still comes up in the work it's still um the idea of um philosophy religion um those are just heartbeats that occur within my work and uh, yes, definitely a heavy footprint in in murmuration for sure. And crow voice in the book is, is meant to be um, an ancient, playful, uh, soothing voice as well. That maybe knows some of the old magic. That maybe knows some of the old magic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Well, uh lastly, I know this is a tough question in these times, but I'm I'm wondering how it feels to have this new baby of a book, so beautiful, um, so full of your voice and all of the work that you put into it and be launching it in the time of COVID, which mm-hmm. makes it that much harder. Um, yeah, I had to ask myself, well, what's the relevance, right? Um, and I think many writers... whose whose works are coming out right now have been asking themselves the same question. Um, So a friend ages ago, Susan Musgraves, had something to say to another writer friend of mine on my Facebook page about this very thing, about trying to market your work, whether or not you should do that. And she really had some wisdom there. Um, She talked about the book finding its people and I actually really quite believe in that. I think that once it's out of my hands, it's truly out of my hands. And I think, I know for myself, um, COVID has allowed me some time for deep reflection and also to enter back into reading, which um, I sort of let go of for a little while. During the process of writing, of course, I I don't tend to read too, too much, but i would become a bit of a lazy reader. And, I do have to say that I'm hoping that people um, have been affected in that way, same as me looking to to art for healing, for curiosity, for um, a bit of escape. And um, I'm actually, to be honest as well, frankly, delighted that the book is coming out, given the hard times that we're all going through. So I feel quite lucky, to be honest.
4: hmm hmm
2: well, Angela Dillon,
0: I am sure
2: that your book, Murmuration, is going to find its people. And I'm very grateful that you shared a little bit of your time with us today. And um I know your book will be available in Calgary's Fine Independent Bookstores sometime by the end of the month of September. Yeah. September fifteenth. Uh it's it's out officially, I think, um, across Canada. Um, from what I can see, Amazon or Down Press directly uh, will be able to get the book into the hands of of hopeful readers. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, may it fly with the crows. And thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much, Tiffany. I really appreciate it.
0: Bob Stallworthy has been active in the Alberta writing community since he began writing full-time and professionally in 1985. He is a member of the Writers' Union of Canada and the Writers' Guild of Alberta. Bob has published four books of poetry previously. His poetry has been shortlisted for the City of Calgary W.O. Mitchell Book Prize twice and the Stephen G. Stephenson Prize for Poetry once. Bob Stallworthy, welcome to CJSW
2: Writers' Block.
4: Well, thank you very much for uh, inviting me and for uh, giving me this time.
2: So you're here today to talk about your fifth book, is it? Fifth book, yep. Fifth book of poems called Impact Statement. Can you give the the audience a little bit of an idea of what this volume of poems uh, reflects?
4: Sure. Um, I think that The book is is first and foremost um, a book of poems about things that happened to my wife in the uh, last seven years. Seven years ago, she uh, suffered um, traumatic uh, kidney failure, and um, she now has chronic kidney disease. It was totally unexpected. And um, I think the book is at least in part my reactions to the things that happened to her both in that first uh, eight and a half months and then since. Mm -hmm. I see the book as as two things, and I didn't see it as either of them until after I had finished the book. The first thing is that I see this as a, a book of, of poems about transitions transitions which may be large or small but transitions nevertheless in in my life and in her life um and secondly it is i think uh, a book of love poems so although the word love only appears in the poem in the book once and that's in the last poem yeah so, so love
2: love in the sense of what happens in a long relationship uh, when things are no longer idyllic?
4: Yeah, and and I think too, you know, the the kinds of things that are in there are, um, first of all, my my surprise and and reaction to the the suddenness and the almost permanentness of the kind of situations that. Um, That we encountered. Uh, My wife nearly died four times just getting uh, picked up by the ambulance. Uh, The EMTs had to give her um, CPR four times before they could even leave the parking lot uh, of the shopping center where she was. Uh, That kind of thing, right through to um, questioning. An almost non existent faith uh and actually going back to um, ask ask for help you know when 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 there's nobody else left, then one turns to one's um God or greater power, whatever you want to call it uh and asks for help there, even though. One isn't even sure one believes really um, mm-hmm. so those are the those are the kinds of issues, and then uh, realizing that um a long time um life and love uh, got neglected as it often does when when you've been married as long as uh, we have we're uh, at the time of this incident, I think we were married thirty-eight years. We're now forty-four, coming to the realization that although that that love life was was uh, badly neglected, um, it could be re, uh, revitalized, and uh, that it was in fact still there.
2: The story that you tell is is that. Uh, you know, you took each other for granted. You had your you each had your, your lives. In fact, when when this incident happened to Marilyn, you were not together, you were she was busy doing her thing and you were busy doing your thing and it never occurred to you that, that, that there was any risk in that and then suddenly this catastrophic event happens and uh it changes everything that happens next irrevocably.
4: It it does. Yeah, it changes it uh, completely and instantly. Uh, you don't get a chance to to think about it. You don't get a chance to work up to it. it uh, the catastrophe happens and the results are in front of you now. And uh, that, to me, that was a, a situation which I just I I never saw it coming at all. Hmm. Uh, but it,
2: but in in being the watcher the caregiver um in all those long days i think 240 something days that uh you sat and witnessed her suffering you had an almost cool amount of time to think about uh your regrets and what and how precious it was to you if you could if you would be allowed to hang on to it,
4: absolutely, yeah. And uh, it was actually, I think, 254 days that she was in the hospital. Um, and um, yeah, there was a lot of, a lot of soul searching and a lot of, of thinking about, uh, you know, if I if I only get, if I only get that chance, if if you know whatever power there is in the world uh would 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 please give me one more chance. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would I I would do things differently. It sounds cliche until it happens to you and then all of a sudden that cliche comes home to roost with a with an awful thump.
2: Mhm. Bob, these poems are so intimate and self reflective. I wonder what your thoughts are of, about where that line is between private therapeutic writing and the writing that eventually becomes fit for an audience and, and your own process of, you know, taking these feelings and these words through that.
4: Yeah. And I, I think, uh, I recognize that these poems in particular, um, are, are very personal to me. I think most of my writing is, and I think the, the, um, the process for that is, first of all, get the darn thing down on the page so mm-hmm. that you've got something to hang on to. Um, and then the editing process starts. And I'm very fortunate to have uh, the poet Richard Harrison, who edited this book for me uh, or with me. And um, so he he looked hard and long at each of the poems. And uh, there were were some questions uh, that had to be answered, like um, if you get so far down, is there anything left to be said? Have you gone too far? Are you, are you beginning to explain what's going on? Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got to leave some some room for the reader to move around both in and outside of the poem, uh, and, and bring some of their own. Own experiences to whatever the the issue is, and I think also think, and this also comes from Richard and his his way of editing is is the poem about an event, or is it about what was learned because of the event, and I think if it's just about the event, then it's nine times out of ten, probably going to be more angst than anything else. Mm-hmm. If it is about what was learned by going through the event, whether that is said explicitly or whether one figures it out, hopefully one figures it out from from reading the poem. Then I think the poem becomes much more universal mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and open to you reading it, us talking about it on the radio. Uh, that that's my sort of ultimate hope is that people will will uh, read the book uh, or stumble across the book and find that they're getting some sort of um, support, maybe comfort, but certainly support. From from the the idea that they're they're not alone,
2: mm-hmm. other
4: people, other people have been through the kind of pain they're going through, and it's okay to feel that pain. And that there is a way through it. I mean, and a, yeah, and that there is know. a way through it. Mm-hmm. Uh, not necessarily the way you would go get through it, or or my writing gets me through it, but. There is a way through
2: it. Yeah. Well, Bob Dalworthy, you've, you've written a beautiful book again, another beautiful book. And I really appreciate you taking the time for Writer's Block today.
4: Well, I really appreciate your invitation to be on Writer's Block.
0: Richard Harrison is the author of seven books of poetry, including the Governor General's award-winning On Not Losing My Father's Ashes in the Flood. He just retired from teaching English and creative writing at Mount Royal University in Calgary, where he lives with his wife, Lisa. Now we have our co-host, Lynn Cadence, talking to Richard Harrison about his essay in Locations of Grief.
1: How did you think about... Locations of grief. She talks about an emotional geography and place. So, mm-hmm. how did you think about it in terms of this work, and how it fits with the others?
5: Well, she, um, you know, Catherine was, you know, the overall project was to like was to point out that, you know, you carry your grief in everything you see. Um, both there are things that remind me very specifically of my mother's my mother's death. And then there are places that my mother never went, and yet um, I can see them through the fact that I she's no longer with me. Um, and I mean, a lot of my work has been doing that for the last 10 years since since Dad died. But mm-hmm. this one was very, very sharply oriented in a location. I, um, and, and when someone that you love dies in a particular place, that place... You know gathers a kind of sacredness to it um and it's it is never the same for you so i I was writing all of that, and then it it linked up very much with what catherine was 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 doing with her own work Mourning um is to hold a place in the world um special because it's connected to the
1: so tell me something about your grief process and how it relates to your writing. I do say
5: somewhere in another poem, but poetry is the shortest distance between suffering and the word. Life is full of things that we suffer. And so the question isn't whether we can um, escape it. And in many ways, when it's death that we suffer or that others suffer and we mourn or we cause it grief, you know, we can't, we can't stop it or take it away. So the question is, how do we answer it? And... For artists, I think the answer is you have to make something beautiful out of it. Um, because if, if you do that, then, but at least it didn't, at least the question didn't render us mute. Mm-hmm. So I've, you know, I've taken something of my mother's death, my father's death, and um, and in essentially my mother's death, specifically taken something and said, here's what I learned. Here's what I understand now. Here's where that death that I went through took me to a new understanding of life. And now I want to share that with you. Um, and in that way, my mother's death doesn't, isn't the end of what she teaches. It isn't the end of her existence in this.
1: The essay that you've written is about constructing the ending of your mother's life with her and other people that are around you. And, and so you've created an artifact from the ending of...
5: You're trying, or at least I'm trying to to capture as much of what happened as possible. Not just that, but if, as much of it, uh, whenever you choose words as a response to an event, you're choosing how you, re- how you shape the memory of that event. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is what language theorists have been talking about for a long time, um, you know, that... Not that there is no truth, not that there is no objective reality, not that there is no memory independent of language, but that language is enormously powerful in, in shaping how, what our relationship is with those things to the point that ultimately language takes over the way in which the language, as you say, structures or constructs the memory becomes more significant. Um, and that, that I think, has happened to me, um, and I'm, I've told, I've, I've talked about this story now for the three years. Um, I think the
1: other thing I really wondered about was, so who, who are you writing for, and did it shift through the process of the writing?
5: In this particular piece, there's a, there's a, I, I actually pause and reflect on that,
4: yes. and I,
5: I start going, I don't know why I'm writing this, I don't know what it's going to be. But, but what I do know is I'm writing to you. That's the, the that line that concludes that paragraph. I do know that I'm writing to you. And uh, at first I thought, well, that's, that's to Lisa. That's to my wife because I write so much to her. Right? So so much of my non-published writing to anyone else um, is writing to her. And then a lot of my published writing comes out of my dialogue with her. But then later in this particular essay, I start talking about her. Um so I'm not talking to her anymore. So it was it was a really interesting process to realize that I had I'd, I'd stumbled upon there was somebody I was writing to, um, but I'm not sure I don't have a fixed person the way I often do. Um, and then I talk about that in the in the essay. Like I'm really think trying to think this through. I think the whole the unsettling thing about losing a, a um, losing my mother, particularly the way I did, was that it it threw everything into question, and so I I think without knowing it, I was I was even asking myself, "Will uh, you be
1: doing more writing on this topic?"
5: Um, yes, uh, there is a the the next book that I uh, I'm working on has the working title "My Mother Grew Heavy," um, and it's about that moment when I realized my mom was. When she knew she was going to die, when she knew it, she was scheduled. She was happy about it. It was a release for her from the fear of the suffering she would endure from the if the lymphoma had been allowed to continue because um, it was inoperable. Um, uh, when she realized that, she started to eat. She started to feast, and uh, so as she was dying, her body was getting bigger and stronger, which which is reversing. All the ways that you think about this thing, you think about. And when my father died, he dwindled. He just slowly withered and dwindled. But my mom, she got healthier and stronger, and uh, and in that that way, she prepared to meet her death as strong as she could make herself, and she could actually make herself stronger.
1: There's a kind of a, a cadence in poetry, of course, and that shows up in this essay. And, but also there's the resonance of your voice when you read aloud, which made me wonder, have you had any musical training, or does this come from your family experience of reading aloud, or where does, where did, does that combination of the musicality and the voice resonance come from?
5: Um, that, that comes from my childhood onward. My dad used to recite poetry all the time, and uh, it was his language. It was, I think, you know, to condense his entire life. You know, between war and poetry, poetry was the way he kept himself sane. It was the way he kept his humanity alive. And uh, so, it was a very precious language to him. And um, so, my my memory of his voice is is so informed with the way he would he would recite Dylan Thomas or William Butler Yeats. Um, And then he would teach me these poems uh, when I was young, and uh, we would interplay back. And we would, you know, banter back and forth in poem um, every so often. So, uh, uh, and he did. He was he was a he was a lovely reader. He was a beautiful reader of poetry, and he taught me a lot um, when I went into say theater in high school, did school plays, or or when I would be called upon to recite poetry or would study poetry in school um he would have me memorize it and recite it so I really knew. I really knew what these poems meant. And uh and so his voice and his sense of I don't imitate it. I, I I can imitate it, but I I I developed my own approach, but I always wanted to hear hear the way he would read a poem in the way that um I would read a poem. And the poets whom I you know, whose recitations or readings I would really gravitate to they would have that same kind of of rhythm and cadence and musicality so someone like you know Sharon Olds or Patrick Lane they would be the kinds of poets that I would love to hear um so it it, it goes back a long way i i didn't mm-hmm. learn music until much later um all my musicality all that sense of music was in the unmelodic and yet rhythmic speech of the poem um i came to music much much later in my life uh my wife sings with uh, Red Fifty Two, um, the Calgary uh, group.
1: Oh, and, uh, I didn't know that was the connection.
5: Oh yeah, yeah. She's been there for like eleven or twelve years now, and she was a singer before that. So she came. She, I would listen to a lot of their concerts, of course, and and uh, they became very good friends of mine. Um, um, but uh, but I I started to sing myself a few years back. And, and really enjoyed it. It, uh, it was finally a horizon that opened up to me because of my connection with my wife. Hmm.
1: Fantastic. So I'm going to ask you what you think your number one literary superpower is. And <laughs> I, I, I'll tell you, one that I've observed is your ability to distill a work to its title. So you've come mm-hmm. up with great titles for your work, and I know you've helped. Um...
5: I'll uh, well, I mean, I've never thought about titling as a literary So let me let me pause a moment and 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 uh, and enjoy that. Um, it's it's interesting. I, I it, hmm. you know I do a lot of work on comics and graphic novels. That's my other one of my other you know sort of scholarly things. So when you say that, I think um, when you ask that, it just made me realize that of course. Um, pretty well, all the superheroes have superpowers whose origins they do not know. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, Superman. You know, really quick lecture here: Superman. You know, was created in 1938, um, but he doesn't actually even find out that he's from Krypton until 1949. So, for 11 years of his, 11 years of our time, his existence, he doesn't even know that he's he's an alien. He just thinks he's got these. Powers, right um, and it, it occurs to me that so many superpowers are in fact um uh depictions of mystery uh you no know, no one knows why you know why why does radiation make spider man crawl walls and all that sort of stuff like it's, it's um it's interesting so I'm trying to think now it isn't whether when did I what are my origin, what the origin is, or even what that power is—it's—it's it's when do I, when it happens, what do I feel? That's the question I'm asking myself right now. When it happens, what what does it feel? And it's a kind of listening. Like I think if I have a literary superpower,
1: mm-hmm.
5: and it manifests itself, <laughs> I'm really working here. I think if I if I have a literary superpower and it manifests itself in finding titles. It has also. I know it's manifested itself in finding um, lines, finding lines of poetry, finding lines that are productive in terms of the way people think. Um, and it is a kind of listening, um, because people will say things, and uh, and I'll I'll go. I know it. I'll go. That's the title of a poem, or that's the title of your book, or um, that's a that's a that's an important line. Hang on to that. Um, and it's not that I consciously do it. In fact, if I consciously try to do it, it doesn't work. It's, it's really a kind of stepping back into, um, as pure listening as I can do, which means in terms of language, that's where my quest is. That's where my search is, is in the field of language, just going back from pre-aware from, from before I was, I was aware just to when I was. Hmm. And that's where, that's where this, that's where my mother's death let me start that journey. Let me start that quest with her as the main character. Well, so that's what this is. Hmm.
1: That's That's what this writing is. Well, thanks, Richard. I'm Cody Dronic. Thanks for listening to Writer's Block. Bringing us to 9 o'clock is P.T. Cruiser with their song Hilltop. CJSW. that was PT cruiser with their song hilltop up next is group transport hall by local Calgary band women thanks for listening will be laughing